Isis Audiobooks presents an unabridged recording of Small Gods, written by Terry Pratchett and read by Nigel Planer. Consider the tortoise and the eagle. The tortoise is a ground-living creature. It is impossible to live nearer the ground without being under it. Its horizons are a few inches away. It has about as good a turn of speed as you need to hunt down a lettuce. It has survived while the rest of evolution flowed past it by being on the whole no threat to anyone and too much trouble to eat. And then there is the eagle creature of the air and high places, whose horizons go all the way to the edge of the world, eyesight keen enough to spot the rustle of some small and squeaky creature half a mile away, all power, all control, lightning death on wings, talons and claws enough to make a meal of anything smaller than it is, and at least take a hurried snack out of anything bigger. And yet the eagle will sit for hours on the crag and survey the kingdoms of the world until it spots a distant movement, and then it will focus focus, focus on the small shell wobbling among the bushes down there on the desert, and it will leap. And a minute later the tortoise finds the world dropping away from it, and it sees the world for the first time, no longer one inch from the ground but five hundred feet above it, and thinks, what a great friend I have in the eagle. And then the eagle lets go, and almost always the tortoise plunges to its death, Everyone knows why the tortoise does this. Gravity is a habit that is hard to shake off. No one knows why the eagle does this. There's good eating on a tortoise, but considering the effort involved, there's much better eating on practically anything else. It's simply the delight of eagles to torment tortoises. But of course what the eagle does not realise is that it is participating in a very crude form of natural selection. One day a tortoise will learn how to fly. The story takes place in desert lands, in shades of umber and orange. When it begins and ends is more problematical, but at least one of its beginnings took place above the snow line thousands of miles away in the mountains around the hub, or, if you're a believer in Omnianism, the pole. One of the recurring philosophical questions is, does a falling tree in the forest make a sound when there is no one to hear? which says something about the nature of philosophers, because there is always someone in a forest. It may be only a badger wondering what the cracking noise was, or a squirrel a bit puzzled by all the scenery going upwards, but someone. At the very least, if it was deep enough in the forest, millions of small gods would have heard it. Things just happen, one after another. They don't care who knows. But history, ah, history is different. History has to be observed. Otherwise, it's not history. It's just, well, things happening one after the other. And, of course, it has to be controlled. Otherwise, it might turn into anything. Because history, contrary to popular theories, is kings and dates and battles. And these things have to happen at the right time. This is difficult. In a chaotic universe, there are too many things to go wrong. It's too easy for a general's horse to lose a shoe at the wrong time, or for someone to mishear an order, or for the carrier of a vital message to be waylaid by some men with sticks and a cash flow problem. Then there are wild stories, parasitic growths on the tree of history, trying to bend it their way. So, history has its caretakers. They live, well, in the nature of things they live wherever they're sent, but their spiritual home is in a hidden valley in the high ram-tops of the Discworld, where the books of history are kept. These aren't books in which the events of the past are pinned like so many butterflies to a cork. These are the books from which history is derived. There are more than 20,000 of them, each one is ten feet high, bound in lead, and the letters are so small that they have to be read with a magnifying glass. When people say, It is written, it is written here. 
There are fewer metaphors around than people think. Every month the abbot and two senior monks go into the cave where the books are kept. It used to be the duty of the abbot alone, but two other reliable monks were included after the unfortunate case of the 59th abbot who made a million dollars in small bets before his fellow monks caught up with him. Besides, it's dangerous to go in alone. The sheer concentratedness of history, sleeting past soundlessly out into the world, can be overwhelming. Time is a drug. Too much of it kills you. The 493rd abbot folded his wrinkled hands and addressed Lu Tse, one of his most senior monks. The clear air and untroubled life of the secret valley was such that all the monks were senior. Besides, when you work with time every day, some of it tends to rub off. The place is Omnia, said the abbot, on the Clatrian coast. I remember, said Lutze, young fellow called Osori, wasn't there? Things must be carefully observed, said the abbot. There are pressures, free will, predestination, the power of symbols, turning point. You know all about this. Haven't been to Omnia for all... Oh, "'Must be seven hundred years,' said Lutze. "'Dry place. "'Shouldn't think there's a ton of good soil in the whole country either.' "'Well, off you go, then,' said the abbot. "'I shall take my mountains,' said Lutze. "'The climate will be good for them.' "'And he also took his broom and his sleeping mat. "'The history monks don't go in for possessions. "'They find most things wear out in a century or two. "'It took him four years to get to Omnia.' He had to watch a couple of battles and an assassination on the way, otherwise they would have just been random events. It was the year of the notional serpent, or two hundred years after the declaration of the prophet Abyss, which meant that the time of the eighth prophet was imminent. That was the reliable thing about the church of the great god Om. It had very punctual prophets. You could set your calendar by them if you had one big enough. And, as is generally the case around the time a prophet is expected, the church redoubled its efforts to be holy. This was very much like the bustle you get in any large concern when the auditors are expected, but tended towards taking people suspected of being less holy and putting them to death in a hundred ingenious ways. This is considered a reliable barometer of the state of one's piety in most of the really popular religions. There's a tendency to declare that there is more backsliding around than in the National Toboggan Championships, that heresy must be torn out root and branch, and even arm and leg and iron tongue, and that it's time to wipe the slate clean. Blood is generally considered very efficient for this purpose. And it came to pass that in that time the great god Om spake unto brother, the chosen one. Brother paused in mid-ho and stared around the temple garden. Pardon, he said. It was a fine day early in the lesser spring. The prayer mills spun merrily in the breeze off the mountains. Bees loafed around in the bean blossoms, but buzzed fast in order to give the impression of hard work. High above, a lone eagle circled. Brother shrugged and got back to the melons. Yea, the great god Om, spake again unto brother, the chosen one. Psst! Brother hesitated. Someone had definitely spoken to him from out of the air. Perhaps it was a demon. Novice master brother Numrod was hot on the subject of demons. Impure thoughts and demons. One led to the other. Brother was uncomfortably aware that he was probably overdue a demon. The thing to do was to be resolute and repeat the nine fundamental aphorisms. Once more the great god Om spake unto brother, the chosen one. Are you deaf, boy? The hoe thudded onto the baking soil. Brother spun around. There were the bees, the eagle, and at the far end of the garden old brother Lutze, dreamily forking over a dung heap. The prayer mills whirled reassuringly along the walls. He made the sign with which the prophet Ishkibal had cast out spirits. Get thee behind me, demon, he muttered. I am behind you. Brother turned again slowly. The garden was still empty. He fled.
Many stories start long before they begin, and Brother's story had its origin thousands of years before his birth. There are billions of gods in the world. They swarm as thick as herring row. Most of them are too small to see and never get worshipped, at least by anything bigger than bacteria, who never say their prayers and don't demand much in the way of miracles. They are the small gods, the spirits of places where two ant trails cross, the gods of microclimates down between the grass roots, and most of them stay that way. Because what they lack is belief. A handful, though, go on to greater things. Anything may trigger it. A shepherd seeking a lost lamb finds it among the briars and takes a minute or two to build a small cairn of stones in general thanks to whatever spirits might be around the place. Or a peculiarly shaped tree becomes associated with a cure for disease. Or someone carves a spiral on an isolated stone because what gods need is belief and what humans want is gods. Often it stops there, but sometimes it goes further. More rocks are added, more stones are raised, a temple is built on the site where the tree once stood. The god grows in strength, the belief of its worshippers raising it upwards like a thousand tons of rocket fuel. For a very few, the sky's the limit, and sometimes not even that. Brother Numrod was wrestling with impure thoughts in the privacy of his severe cell when he heard the fervent voice from the novitiate's dormitory. The brother boy was flat on his face in front of a statue of Om, in his manifestation as a thunderbolt, shaking and gabbling fragments of prayer. There was something creepy about that boy, Numrod thought. It was the way he looked at you when you were talking, as if he was listening. He wandered out and prodded the prone youth with the end of his cane. Get up, boy. What do you think you're doing in the dormitory in the middle of the day, hmm? Brother managed to spin round while still flat on the floor and grasped the priest's ankles. A voice, a voice, it, it spoke to me, he wailed. Numrod breathed out. Uh, this was familiar ground. Voices were right up Numrod's cloister. He heard them all the time. Get up, boy, he said slightly more kindly. Brother got to his feet. He was, as Numrod had complained before, too old to be a proper novice. About ten years too old. Give me a boy up to the age of seven, Numrod had always said. But Brother was going to die a novice. When they made the rules, they'd never allowed for anything like Brother. His big red honest face stared up at the novice master. Sit down on your bed, Brother, said Numrod. Brother obeyed immediately. Brother did not know the meaning of the word disobedience. It was only one of a large number of words he didn't know the meaning of. Numrod sat down beside him. "'Now, brother,' he said, "'you know what happens to people who tell falsehoods, don't you?' Brother nodded, blushing. "'Very well. Now, tell me about these voices.' Brother twisted the hem of his robe in his hands. "'It was more like one voice, master,' he said. "'Like one voice,' said Brother Numrod. "'And what did this voice say, hmm?' Brother hesitated. Now he came to think about it, the voice hadn't said anything very much. It had just spoken. It was in any case hard to talk to Brother Numrod, who had a nervous habit of squinting at the speaker's lips and repeating the last few words they said practically as they said them. He also touched things all the time. Walls, furniture, people. As if he was afraid the universe would disappear if he didn't keep hold of it. And he had so many nervous tics that they had to cue... Brother Numrod was perfectly normal for someone who had survived in the Citadel for fifty years. Well, Brother began. Brother Numrod held up a skinny hand. Brother could see the pale blue veins in it. And I am sure you know that there are two kinds of voice that are heard by the spiritual, said the Master of Novices. One eyebrow began to twitch. Yes, Master. Brother Murdoch told us that, said Brother meekly. "'Told us that. Mm, yes, sometimes, as he in his infinite wisdom sees fit, "'the god speaks to a chosen one, and he becomes a great prophet,' said Numrod. "'Now I am sure you wouldn't presume to consider yourself one of them. Mm? "'No, master. Master. Mm. "'But there are other voices.' said Brother Numrod, and now his voice had a slight tremolo, beguiling and wheedling and 
persuasive voices, yes, voices that are always waiting to catch us off our guard. Brother relaxed. This was more familiar ground. All the novices knew about those kind of voices, except that usually they talked about fairly straightforward things like the pleasures of nighttime manipulation and the general desirability of girls, which showed that they were novices when it came to voices. Brother Numrod got the kind of voices that were, by comparison, a full oratorio. Some of the bolder novices liked to get Brother Numrod talking on the subject of voices. He was an education, they said, especially when little bits of white spit appeared at the corners of his mouth. Brother listened. Brother Numrod was the novice master, but he wasn't THE novice master. He was only master of the group that included Brother. There were others. Possibly someone in the Citadel knew how many there were. There was someone somewhere whose job it was to know everything. The Citadel occupied the whole of the heart of the city of Com, in the lands between the deserts of Clatch and the plains and jungles of Hawanderland. It extended for miles, its temples, churches, schools, dormitories, gardens and towers, growing into and around one another in a way that suggested a million termites all trying to build their mounds at the same time. When the sun rose, the reflection of the doors of the central temple blazed like fire. They were bronze and a hundred feet tall. On them, in letters of gold set in lead, were the commandments. There were five hundred and twelve so far, and doubtless the next prophet would add his share. The sun's reflected glow shone down and across the tens of thousands of the strong in faith, who laboured below for the greater glory of the great god Om. Probably no one did know how many of them there were. Some things have a way of going critical. Certainly there was only one Cenobiarch, the superior Iam. That was certain. And six archpriests, and thirty lesser Iams, and hundreds of bishops, deacons, subdeacons, and priests, and novices like rats in a grain store, and craftsmen, and bull breeders, and torturers, and vestigial virgins. No matter what your skills, there was a place for you in the Citadel. And if your skill lay in asking the wrong kind of questions, or losing the righteous kind of wars, the place might just be the furnaces of purity, or the quisition's pits of justice. A place for everyone, and everyone in their place. The sun beat down on the temple garden. The great god Om tried to stay in the shade of a melon vine. He was probably safe here, here inside these walls and with the prayer towers all around, but you couldn't be too careful. He'd been lucky once, but it was asking too much to expect to be lucky again. The trouble with being a god is that you've got no one to pray to. He crawled forward purposefully towards the old man shoveling muck, until, after much exertion, he judged himself to be within earshot. He spake thusly, I, you. There was no answer. There was not even any suggestion that anything had been heard. Om lost his temper and turned Lutze into a lowly worm in the deepest cesspit of hell, and then got even more angry when the old man went on peacefully shoveling. The devils of infinity fill your living bones with sulphur. He screamed. This did not make a great deal of difference. Deaf old bugger, muttered the great god Om. Or perhaps there was someone who did know all there was to be known about the Citadel. There's always someone who collects knowledge, not because of a love of the stuff, but in the same way that a magpie collects glitter, or a caddis fly collects little bits of twigs and rock. And there's always someone who has to do all those things that need to be done, but which other people would rather not do, or even acknowledge existed. The third thing the people noticed about Vorbis was his height. He was well over six feet tall, but stick-thin, like a normal-proportioned person modelled in clay by a child, and then rolled out. The second thing that people noticed about Vorbis was his eyes, his ancestors had come from one of the deep desert tribes that had evolved the peculiar trait of having dark eyes, not just dark of pupil, but almost black of eyeball. It made it very hard to tell where he was looking. It was as if he had sunglasses on under his skin. But the first thing they noticed was his skull. Deacon Vorbis was bald by design. 
Most of the church's ministers, as soon as they were ordained, cultivated long hair and beards that you could lose a goat in. But Vorbis shaved all over. He gleamed. And lack of hair seemed to add to his power. He didn't menace. He never threatened. He just gave everyone the feeling that his personal space radiated several metres from his body, and that anyone approaching Vorbis was intruding on something important. Superiors, fifty years his senior, felt apologetic about interrupting whatever it was he was thinking about. It was almost impossible to know what he was thinking about, and no one ever asked. The most obvious reason for this was that Vorbis was the head of the Quisition, whose job it was to do all those things that needed to be done and which other people would rather not do. You do not ask people like that what they are thinking about in case they turn around very slowly and say, You. The highest post that could be held in the Quisition was that of deacon, a rule instituted hundreds of years ago to prevent this branch of the church becoming too big for its boots, which were of the one-size-fits-all, tighten-the-screws variety. But with a mind like his, everyone said, he could easily be an archpriest by now, or even an E.M., Vorbis didn't worry about that kind of trivia. Vorbis knew his destiny. Hadn't the god himself told him? There, said Brother Numrod, patting Brother on the shoulder. I'm sure you'll see things clearer now. Brother felt that a specific reply was expected. Yes, Master, he said. I'm sure I shall. Shall. Mm. It is your holy duty to resist the voices at all times said Numrod, still patting. Yes, Master, I will, especially if they tell me to do any of the things you mentioned. Mentioned. Good, good, good. And if you hear them again, what will you do? Hmm? Come and tell you, said Brother, dutifully. Tell you. Good, good, good. That's what I like to hear, said Numrod. That's what I tell all my boys. Remember that I'm always here to deal with any little problems that may be bothering you. Yes, Master. Shall I go back to the garden now? Now. I think so, I think so. And no more voices, you hear? Numrod waved a finger of his non-patting hand. A cheek puckered. Yes, Master. "'What were you doing in the garden?' "'Hoeing the melons, Master,' said Brother. "'Melons? Mm, melons,' said Numrod slowly. "'Melons, melons. "'Well, that goes some way towards explaining things, of course.' "'An eyelid flickered madly. "'It wasn't just the great god that spoke to Vorbis in the confines of his head. "'Everyone spoke to an exquisitor sooner or later.' It was just a matter of stamina. Vorbis didn't often go down to watch the Inquisitors at work these days. Exquisitors didn't have to. He sent down instructions, he received reports, but special circumstances merited his special attention. It has to be said, there was little to laugh at in the cellar of the Quisition, not if you had a normal sense of humour. There were no jolly little signs saying, you don't have to be pitilessly sadistic to work here, but it helps. But there were things to suggest to a thinking man that the creator of mankind had a very oblique sense of fun indeed, and to breed in his heart a rage to storm the gates of heaven. The mugs, for example. The inquisitors stopped work twice a day for coffee. Their mugs, which each man had brought from home, were grouped around the kettle on the hearth of the central furnace which incidentally heated the irons and knives. They had legends on them like, A present from the holy grotto of Ossery, or... To the world's greatest daddy. Most of them were chipped, and no two of them were the same. And there were the postcards on the wall. It was traditional that when an inquisitor went on holiday, he'd send back a crudely coloured woodcut of the local view with some suitably jolly and risque message on the back. And there was the pinned-up, tearful letter from Inquisitor First Class Ishmali Pop Quoom, thanking all the lads for collecting no fewer than 78 obols for his retirement present, and the lovely bunch of flowers for Mrs Quoom, indicating that he'd always remember his days in Number 3 Pit, and was looking forward to coming in and helping out any time they were short-handed. And it all meant this that there are hardly any excesses of the most crazed psychopath that cannot easily be duplicated by a normal, kindly family man who just comes into work every day and has a job to do. Vorbis loved knowing that. A man who knew that knew everything he needed to know about people. 
Currently, he was sitting alongside the bench, on which lay what was still technically the trembling body of Brother Sasho, formerly his secretary. He looked up at the duty inquisitor, who nodded. Vorbis leaned over the chained secretary. "'What were their names?' he repeated. "'Don't know.' "'I know you gave them copies of my correspondence, Sasho. "'They are treacherous heretics who will spend eternity in the hells. "'Will you join them? "'Don't know names!' "'I trusted you, Sasho. You spied on me. You betrayed the church.' "'No names! Truth is Circe's from pain, Sasho. Tell me.' "'Truth?' Vorbis sighed, and then he saw one of Sasho's fingers curling and uncurling under the manacles, beckoning. Yes? He leaned closer over the body. Sasho opened his one remaining eye. Truth? Yes. The turtle moves. Vorbis sat back, his expression unchanged. His expression seldom changed unless he wanted it to. The Inquisitor watched him in terror. "'I see,' said Vorbis. He stood up and nodded at the Inquisitor. "'How long has he been down here?' Two days, Lord.' "'You can keep him alive for perhaps two days more, Lord?' "'Do so, do so. "'It is, after all,' said Vorbis, "'our duty to preserve life for as long as possible. "'Is it not?' The Inquisitor gave him the nervous smile of one in the presence of a superior whose merest word could see him manacled on a bench. Er, uh, yes, Lord. Heresy and lies everywhere, Vorbis sighed, and now I shall have to find another secretary. It is too vexing. After twenty minutes, Brother relaxed. The siren voices of sensuous evil seemed to have gone away. He got on with the melons. He felt capable of understanding melons. Melons seemed a lot more comprehensible than most things. Hey, you! Brother straightened up. I do not hear you, oh foul succubus, he said. Oh, yes, you do, boy. Now, what I want you to do is... I've got my fingers in my ears. Shoots you, shoots you. Makes you look like a vase. Now, I'm humming a tune. I'm humming a tune. Brother Preptil, the master of the music, had described Brother's voice as putting him in mind of a disappointed vulture arriving too late at the dead donkey. Choral singing was compulsory for novitiates, but after much petitioning by Brother Preptil, a special dispensation had been made for Brother. The sight of his big round face, screwed up in the effort to please, was bad enough, but what was worse was listening to his voice, which was certainly powerful and full of intense conviction, swinging backwards and forwards across the tune without ever quite hitting it. He got extra melons instead. Up in the prayer towers, a flock of crows took off in a hurry. After a full chorus of he is trampling the unrighteous with hooves of hot iron, Brother unplugged his ears and risked a quick listen. Apart from the distant protests of the crows, there was silence. It worked. Put your trust in the god, they said, and he always had, as far back as he could remember. He picked up his hoe and turned back in relief to the vines. The hoe's blade was about to hit the ground when Brother saw the tortoise. It was small and basically yellow and covered with dust. Its shell was badly chipped. It had one beady eye, the other had fallen to one of the thousands of dangers that attend any slow-moving creature which lives an inch from the ground. He looked around. The gardens were well inside the temple complex and surrounded by high walls. "'How did you get in here, little creature?' he said. "'Did you fly?' The tortoise stared monoptically at him. Brother felt a bit homesick. There'd been plenty of tortoises in the sandy hills back home. "'I could give you some lettuce.' said Brother. But I don't think tortoises are allowed in the gardens. Aren't you vermin? The tortoise continued to stare. Practically nothing can stare like a tortoise. Brother felt obliged to do something. There's grapes, he said. Probably it's not sinful to give you one grape. How would you like a grape, little tortoise? 
How would you like to be an abomination in the nethermost pit of chaos? said the tortoise. The crows, who had fled to the outer walls, took off again to a rendering of the way of the infidel is a nest of thorns. Brother opened his eyes and took his fingers out of his ears again. The tortoise said, I'm still here. Brother hesitated. It dawned on him very slowly that demons and succubi didn't turn up looking like small old tortoises. There wouldn't be much point. Even Brother Numrod would have to agree that when it came to rampant eroticism, you could do a lot better than a one-eyed tortoise. "'I didn't know tortoises could talk,' he said. "'They can't,' said the tortoise. "'Read my lips.' Brother looked closer. "'You haven't got any lips,' he said. "'No, nor proper vocal cords.' agreed the tortoise. I'm doing it straight into your head. Do you understand? Gosh! You do understand, don't you? No. The tortoise rolled its eye. Oh, I should have known. Well, doesn't matter. I don't have to waste time on gardeners. Go and fetch the top man right now. Top man? said brother. He put his hand to his mouth. You don't mean Brother Numrod? Who's he? said the tortoise. The master of the novices. Oh, me, said the tortoise. No, it went on in a sing-song imitation of Brother's voice. I didn't mean the master of the novices. I mean the high priest, or whatever he calls himself. I suppose there is one. Brother nodded blankly. "'High priest, right?' said the tortoise. "'High priest, high priest?' Brother nodded again. He knew there was a high priest. It was just that while he could just about encompass the hierarchical structure between his own self and Brother Numrod, he was unable to give serious consideration to any kind of link between Brother the Novice and the Cenobiarch. He was theoretically aware that there was one, that there was a huge canonical structure with the high priest at the top and brother very firmly at the bottom, but he viewed it in the same way as an amoeba might view the chain of evolution all the way between itself and, for example, a chartered accountant. It was missing links all the way to the top. I, I can't go asking the... Uh, brother hesitated. Even the thought of talking to the Cenobiarch frightened him into silence. I can't ask anyone to ask the high Cenobiarch to come and talk to a tortoise. Turn into a mud leech and wither in the fires of retribution, screamed the tortoise. There's no need to curse, said Brother. The tortoise bounced up and down furiously. That wasn't a curse. That was an order. Oh, I am the great god Om. Brother blinked. Then he said, No, you're not. I've seen the great god Om. He waved a hand, making the shape of the holy horns, conscientiously. And he isn't tortoise-shaped. He comes as an eagle, or a lion, or a mighty bull. There's a statue in the great temple. It's seven cubits high. It's got bronze on it and everything. It's trampling infidels. You can't trample infidels when you're a tortoise. I mean, all you could do is give them a meaningful look. It's got horns of real gold. Where I used to live, there was a statue one cubit high in the next village, and that was a bull too. So that's how I know you're not the great god. Holy horns, Om. The tortoise subsided. How many talking tortoises have you met? It said sarcastically. I don't know, said brother. What do you mean you don't know? Well, they might all talk, said Brother conscientiously, demonstrating the very personal kind of logic that got him extra melons. They just might not say anything when I'm there. I am the great god Om, said the tortoise, in a menacing and unavoidably low voice, and before very long you are going to be a very unfortunate priest. Go and get him. Novice, said Brother. What? Novice, not priest. 
They won't let me be... Get him! But I, I, I don't think the Cenobiarch ever comes into our vegetable garden, said Brother. I don't even think he knows what a melon is. I'm not bothered about that, said the tortoise. Fetch him now, or there will be a shaking of the earth. The moon will be as blood. Agues and boils will afflict mankind, and diverse ills will befall. I really mean it, he added. Oh, I'll see what I can do, said Brother, backing away. And I'm being very reasonable in the circumstances, the tortoise shouted after him. You don't sing badly, mind you, it added as an afterthought. I've heard worse, as Brother's grubby robe disappeared through the gateway. Puts me in mind of that time there was the affliction of plague in Pseudopolis, it said quietly as the footsteps faded. What a wailing and gnashing of teeth was there, all right, it sighed. Great days, great days. Many feel they are called to the priesthood, but what they really hear is an inner voice saying, It's indoor work with no heavy lifting. Do you want to be a ploughman like your father? Whereas Brother didn't just believe, he really believed. That sort of thing is usually embarrassing when it happens in a God-fearing family, but all Brother had was his grandmother, and she believed too. She believed like iron believes in metal. She was the kind of woman every priest dreads in a congregation, the one who knows all the chants, all the sermons. In the Omnian church, women were allowed in the temple only on sufferance, and had to keep absolutely silent and well covered up in their own section behind the pulpit in case the sight of one half of the human race caused the male members of the congregation to hear voices not unakin to those that plagued Brother Numrod through every sleeping and waking hour. The problem was that Brother's grandmother had the kind of personality that can project itself through a lead sheet, and a bitter piety with the strength of a diamond-bit auger. If she'd been born a man, Omnianism would have found its eighth prophet rather earlier than expected. As it was, she organised the temple cleaning, statue polishing, and stoning of suspected adulteresses, rotors, with a terrible efficiency. So Brother grew up in the sure and certain knowledge of the great god Om. Brother grew up knowing that Om's eyes were on him all the time, especially in places like the privy, and that demons assailed him on all sides and were only kept at bay by the strength of his belief and the weight of grandmother's cane, which was kept behind the door on those rare occasions when it was not being used. He could recite every verse in all seven books of the prophets and every single precept. He knew all the laws and the songs, especially the laws. The Omnians were a God-fearing people. They had a great deal to fear. Vorbis's room was in the upper citadel, which was unusual for a mere deacon. He hadn't asked for it. He seldom had to ask for anything. Destiny has a way of marking her own. He also got visited by some of the most powerful men in the church's hierarchy. Not, of course, the six archpriests, or the Cenobiarch himself. They weren't that important. They were merely at the top. The people who really run organisations are usually found several levels down, where it's still possible to get things done. People liked to be friends with Vorbis, mainly because of the aforesaid mental field which suggested to them, in the subtlest of ways, that they didn't want to be his enemy. Two of them were sitting down with him now. They were General Iam Freyet, who, whatever the official records might suggest, was the man who ran most of the Divine Legion, and Bishop Druna, Secretary to the Congress of Iams. People might not think that was much of a position of power, but then they'd never been minutes secretary to a meeting of slightly deaf old men. Neither man was in fact there. They were not talking to Vorbis. It was one of those kind of meetings. Lots of people didn't talk to Vorbis, and went out of their way not to have meetings with him. Some of the abbots from the distant monasteries had recently been summoned to the citadel, travelling secretly for up to a week across tortuous terrain, just so they definitely wouldn't join the shadowy figures visiting Vorbis's room. In the last few months, Vorbis had apparently had about as many visitors as the man in the iron mask. Nor were they talking, but if they had been there, and if they had been having a conversation, it would have gone like this. And now, said Vorbis, the matter of Ephib. 
Bishop Druna shrugged, or would have done if he'd been there, but he wasn't, so he couldn't. Of no consequence, they say, no threat. The two men looked at Vorbis, a man who never raised his voice. It was very hard to tell what Vorbis was thinking, often even after he'd told you. Really? Is this what we've come to? he said. No threat. After what they did to poor brother Murdoch, the insults to Om, this must not pass. What is proposed to be done? No more fighting, said Fryat. They fight like madmen. No, we've lost too many already. They have strong gods, said Druna. They have better bows, said Fryat. There is no god but Om, said Vorbis. What the Ephebians believe they worship are nothing but jinns and demons. If it can be called worship. Have you seen this? He pushed forward a scroll of paper. What is it? said Fryat cautiously. A lie. A history that does not exist and never existed. The... the things... Vorbis hesitated, trying to remember a word that had long since fallen into disuse. Like the tales told to children who are too young, words for people to say, the, the, the... Oh, a play, said Fryat. Vorbis's gaze nailed him to the wall. You know of these things? I... when I travelled in Catch once, Fryat stuttered. He visibly pulled himself together. He had commanded one hundred thousand men in battle. He didn't deserve this. He found he didn't dare look at Vorbis's expression. They, they, they dance dances, he said limply, on their holy days. The women have, have bells on, on their... And, and, and sing songs, all about the early days of the world, when the gods... Uh, he faded. It, it, it was disgusting, he said. He clicked his knuckles, a habit of his whenever he was worried. "'This one has their gods in it,' said Vorbis. "'Men in masks. Can you believe that? "'They have a god of wine, a drunken old man, "'and people say Ephib is no threat. "'And this,' he tossed another thicker scroll onto the table, "'this is far worse, for while they worship false gods in error, their error is in their choice of gods, not in their worship. But this... Druna gave it a cautious examination. I believe there are other copies, even in the citadel, said Vorbis. This one belongs to Sasho. I believe you recommended him to my service, Fryat. He, he, he always struck me as an, an intelligent and keen young man, said the general. But disloyal said Vorbis, and now receiving his just reward. It is only to be regretted that he has not been induced to give us the names of his fellow heretics. Fryat fought against the sudden rush of relief. His eyes met those of Vorbis. Druna broke the silence. De Chelonian mobile, he said aloud. The turtle moves. Hmm, what does that mean? Even telling you could put your soul at risk of a thousand years in hell, said Vorbis. His eyes had not left Fryat, who was now staring fixedly at the wall. I think it is a risk we might carefully take, said Druna. Vorbis shrugged. The writer claims that the world travels through the void on the back of four huge elephants, he said. Druna's mouth dropped open. "'On the back?' he said. "'It is claimed,' said Vorbis, still watching Fryat. But what, "'What do they stand on?' "'The writer says they stand on the shell of an enormous turtle,' said Vorbis. Druna grinned nervously. "'And what does that stand on?' he said. "'I see no point in speculating as to what it stands on.' snapped Vorbis, since it does not exist. Of course, of, of course, said Druna quickly. It was only idle curiosity. 
Most curiosity is, said Vorbis. It leads the mind into speculative ways. Yet the man who wrote this walks around free in Ephib now. Druna glanced at the scroll. He says here he went on a ship that sailed to an island on the edge, and he looked over, and lies, said Vorbis evenly. And it would make no difference even if they were not lies. Truth lies within, not without. In the words of the great god Om, as delivered through his chosen prophets, our eyes may deceive us, but our god never will. Um, but... Vorbis looked at Fryat. The general was sweating. Yes, he said. Well, uh, uh, Ephib, a place where madmen have mad ideas. Everyone knows that. Maybe the wisest course is to mm, leave them to stew in their folly. Vorbis shook his head. Unfortunately, wild and unstable ideas have a disturbing tendency to move around and take hold. Fryat had to admit that this was true. He knew from experience that true and obvious ideas, such as the ineffable wisdom and judgment of the great god Om, seemed so obscure to many people that you actually had to kill them before they saw the error of their ways, whereas dangerous and nebulous and wrong-headed notions often had such an attraction for some people that they would, he rubbed a scar thoughtfully, hide up in the mountains and throw rocks at you until you starved them out. They'd prefer to die rather than see sense. Fryat had seen sense at an early age. He'd seen it was sense not to die. Um, what do you propose? he said. The council want to parley with Ephib, said Druna. You know, I have to organise a deputation to leave tomorrow. How many soldiers? said Vorbis. A, a bodyguard only. We've been guaranteed safe passage after all, said Fryat. "'We have been guaranteed safe passage,' said Vorbis. "'It sounded like a lengthy curse. "'And once inside?' Fryat wanted to say, "'I've spoken to the commander of the Ephebian garrison, "'and I think he is a man of honour, "'although, of course, he is indeed a despicable infidel "'and lower than the worms, "'but it was not the kind of thing he felt it wise to say to Vorbis.' "'He substituted,' "'We shall be on our guard.' "'Can we surprise them?' Fryat hesitated. Um, "'We?' he said. "'I shall lead the party,' said Vorbis. There was the briefest exchange of glances between himself and the secretary. "'I would like to be away from the citadel for a while. A change of air.' "'Besides, we should not let the Ephebians think they merit the attentions of a superior member of the church. "'I was just musing as to the possibilities, should we be provoked.' Fryat's nervous click was like a whip-crack. "'We have given them our word.' "'There is no truce with unbelievers,' said Vorbis. "'But there are practical considerations,' said Fryat, as sharply as he dared. The palace of Ephib is a labyrinth, I know. There are traps. No one gets in without a guide. How does the guide get in? said Vorbis. I, I assume he guides himself, said the general. In my experience there is always another way, said Vorbis. Into everything there is always another way, which the god will show in his own time. We can be assured of that. "'Certainly matters would be easier if there was a lack of stability in Ephib,' said Druna. "'It does indeed harbour certain elements.' "'And it will be the gateway to the whole of the Turnwise coast,' said Vorbis. "'Well, the Djell, and then Tsort,' said Vorbis. "'Druna tried to avoid seeing Fryat's expression. "'It is our duty,' said Vorbis. Our holy duty. We must not forget poor brother Murduk. He was unarmed and alone. Brother's huge sandals flip-flopped obediently along the stone-flagged corridor towards brother Numrod's barren cell. He tried composing messages in his head. Master, there's a tortoise who says, um, Master, this tortoise wants... Uh, Master, guess what? 
I heard from this tortoise in the melons that... Brother would never have dared to think of himself as a prophet, but he had a shrewd idea of the outcome of any interview that began in this way. Many people assumed that Brother was an idiot. He looked like one, from his round and open face to his splay feet and knock ankles. He also had a habit of moving his lips while he thought deeply, as if he was rehearsing every sentence. And this was because that was what he was doing. Thinking was not something that came easily to Brother. Most people think automatically. Thought dancing through their brains like static electricity across a cloud. At least that's how it seemed to him. Whereas he had to construct thoughts a bit at a time, like someone building a wall. A short lifetime of being laughed at for having a body like a barrel and feet that gave the impression that they were about to set out in opposite directions had given him a strong tendency to think very carefully about anything he said. Brother Numrod was prostrate on the floor in front of a statue of Om, trampling the ungodly, with his fingers in his ears. The voices were troubling him again. Brother coughed. He coughed again. Brother Numrod raised his head. Brother Numrod, said Brother. What? Er, uh, Brother Numrod? What? Brother Numrod unplugged his ears. Yes, he said testily. Um... There's something you ought to see in the, um, in, in the garden. Brother Numrod, the master of novices sat up. Brother's face was a glowing picture of concern. What do you mean? Brother Numrod said. In the garden. It's hard to explain. Um, I found out where the voices were coming from, Brother Numrod, and you did say to be sure and tell you. The old priest gave Brother a sharp look. But if ever there was a person without guile or any kind of subtlety, it was Brother. Fear is strange soil. Mainly it grows obedience, like corn, which grows in rows and makes weeding easy. But sometimes it grows the potatoes of defiance, which flourish underground. The Citadel had a lot of underground. There were the pits and tunnels of the Quisition, there were cellars and sewers, forgotten rooms, dead ends, spaces behind ancient walls, even natural caves in the bedrock itself. This was such a cave. Smoke from the fire in the middle of the floor found its way out through a crack in the roof and eventually into the maze of uncountable chimneys and light wells above. There were a dozen figures in the dancing shadows. They wore rough hoods over nondescript clothes, Crude things made of rags, nothing that couldn't easily be burned after the meeting so that the wandering fingers of the Quisition would find nothing incriminating. Something about the way most of them moved suggested men who were used to carrying weapons. Here and there, clues, a stance, the turn of a word. On one wall of the cave there was a drawing. It was vaguely oval, with three little extensions at the top the middle one slightly the largest of the three, and the three at the bottom, the middle one of these slightly longer and more pointed. A child's drawing of a turtle. "'Of course he'll go to Ephib,' said a mask. "'He won't dare not to. He'll have to damn the river of truth at its source.' "'We must bail out what we can, then,' said another mask. "'We must kill Vorbis.' "'Not in Ephib. When that happens it must happen here, so people will know.' when we're strong enough. "'Will we ever be strong enough?' said a mask. Its owner clicked his knuckles nervously. "'Even the peasants know there's something wrong. You can't stop the truth. Damn the river of truth. Then there are leaks of great force. Didn't we find out about Murdoch?' Huh, "'Killed in Ephib,' Vorbis said. "'One of us must go to Ephib and save the master, if he really exists.' He exists. His name is on the book. Didactylos. Strange name. It means two-fingered, you know. They must honour him in Ephib. Bring him back here, if possible, and the book. One of the masks seemed hesitant. His knuckles clicked again. But uh, will people rally behind a, a book? People need more than a book. They're peasants. They can't read, but they can listen. Even so, they need, they need to be shown. They need a symbol. We have one. Instinctively, every masked figure turned to look at the drawing on the wall, indistinct in the firelight, 
but graven on their minds. They were looking at the truth, which can often impress. The turtle moves. The turtle moves. The turtle moves. The leader nodded. And now, he said, we will draw lots. The great god Om waxed wroth, or at least made a spirited attempt. There is a limit to the amount of wrath that can be waxed one inch from the ground, but he was right up against it. He silently cursed a beetle, which is like pouring water onto a pond. It didn't seem to make any difference anyway. The beetle plodded away. He cursed a melon unto the eighth generation, but nothing happened. He tried a plague of boils. The melon just sat there, ripening slightly. Just because he was temporarily embarrassed, the whole world thought he could take advantage. Well, when Om got back to his rightful shape and power, he told himself, steps would be taken. The tribes of beetles and melons would wish they'd never been created, and something really horrible would happen to all eagles, and there would be a holy commandment involving the planting of more lettuces. By the time the big boy arrived back with the waxy-skinned man, the great god Om was in no mood for pleasantries. Besides, from a tortoise-eye point of view, even the most handsome human is only a pair of feet, a distant pointy head, and somewhere up there the wrong end of a pair of nostrils. "'What's this?' he snarled. "'This is Brother Numrod,' said Brother. "'Master of the novices. He is very important.' "'Didn't I tell you not to bring me some fat old pederast?' shouted the voice in his head. "'Your eyeballs will be spitted on shafts of fire for this.' Brother knelt down. "'I can't go to the high priest,' he said, as patiently as possible. "'Novices aren't even allowed in the great temple, except on special occasions. "'I'd be taught the error of my ways by the quisition if I was caught. "'It's the law.' "'Stupid fool!' the tortoise shouted. "'Numrod decided that it was time to speak. "'Novice brother,' he said, "'for what reason are you talking to a small tortoise?' "'Because,' brother paused, "'because it's talking to me, isn't it?' "'Brother Numrod looked down at the small, one-eyed head poking out of the shell. "'He was by and large a kindly man. "'Sometimes demons and devils did put disquieting thoughts into his head, "'but he saw to it that they stayed there, "'and he did not in any literal sense deserve to be called what the tortoise called him, "'which in fact, if he had heard it, he would have thought was something to do with feet.' and he was well aware that it was possible to hear voices attributed to demons, and sometimes gods. Tortoises was a new one. Tortoises made him feel worried about Brother, whom he'd always thought of as an amiable lump, who did without any sort of complaint anything asked of him. Of course, many novices volunteered for cleaning out the cesspits and bull cages, out of a strange belief that holiness and piety had something to do with being up to your knees in dirt. Brother never volunteered, but if he was told to do something, he did it not out of any desire to impress, but simply because he'd been told. And now he was talking to tortoises. "'I think I have to tell you, brother,' he said, "'that it is not talking.' "'You can't hear it?' "'I cannot hear it, brother. "'It told me it was—' "'Brother hesitated. "'It told me it was the great god.' He flinched. Grandmother would have hit him with something heavy now. "'Ah, well, you see, brother,' said Brother Numrod, twitching gently, "'this sort of thing is not unknown among young men recently called to the church. I dare say you heard the voice of the great God when you were called, didn't you? Hmm?' Metaphor was lost on brother. He remembered hearing the voice of his grandmother. He hadn't been called so much as sent, but he nodded anyway. "'And in your enthusiasm, it's only natural that you should think you hear the great god talking to you,' Numrod went on. The tortoise bounced up and down. "'Smite you with thunderbolts!' it screamed. "'I find healthy exercise is the thing,' said Numrod, "'and plenty of cold water. "'Writhe on the spikes of damnation!' Numrod reached down and picked up the tortoise, turning it over. Its legs waggled angrily. How did it get here, hmm? 
"'I don't know, Brother Numrod,' said Brother, dutifully. "'Your hand to wither and drop off!' screamed the voice in his head. "'There's very good eating on one of these, you know,' said the Master of Novices. He saw the expression on Brother's face. "'Look at it like this,' he said. "'Would the great god Om, Holy Horns, ever manifest himself in such a lowly creature as this?' A bull, yes, of course, an eagle, certainly, and I think on one occasion a swan. But a tortoise? Your sexual organs to sprout wings and fly away. After all, Numrod went on, oblivious to the secret chorus in Brother's head, what kind of miracles could a tortoise do? Hmm? Hmm? Your ankles to be crushed in the jaws of giants. "'Turn lettuce into gold, perhaps?' said Brother Numrod, in the jovial tones of those blessed with no sense of humour. "'Crush ants underfoot?' <laughs> <laughs> said Brother, dutifully. "'I shall take it along to the kitchen out of your way,' said the Master of Novices. "'They make excellent soup, and then you'll hear no more voices, depend upon it. "'Fire cures all follies, hmm, yes?' "'Soup?' Er, uh, said Brother, your intestines to be wound around a tree until you are sorry. Numrod looked around the garden. It seemed to be full of melons and pumpkins and cucumbers. He shuddered. Lots of cold water, that's the thing, he said. Lots and lots. He focused on Brother again. Hmm? He wandered off towards the kitchens. The great god Om was upside down in a basket in one of the kitchens, half buried under a bunch of herbs and some carrots. An upturned tortoise will try to right itself, firstly by sticking out its neck to its fullest extent, and trying to use its head as a lever. If this doesn't work, it will wave its legs frantically, in case this will rock it upright. An upturned tortoise is the ninth most pathetic thing in the entire multiverse. An upturned tortoise who knows what's going to happen to it next is... Well, at least up there at number four. The quickest way to kill a tortoise for the pot is to plunge it into boiling water. Kitchens and storerooms and craftsmen's workshops belonging to the church's civilian population honeycombed the citadel. It takes forty men with their feet on the ground to keep one man with his head in the air. This was only one of them, a smoky-ceilinged cellar whose focal point was an arched fireplace. Flames roared up the flue. Turnspit dogs trotted in their treadmills. Cleavers rose and fell on the chopping blocks. Off to one side of the huge hearth, among various other blackened cauldrons, a small pot of water was already beginning to seethe. "'The worms of revenge to eat your blackened nostrils!' screamed Om, twitching his legs violently. The basket rocked. A hairy hand reached in and removed the herbs. "'Hawks to peck your liver!' A hand reached in again and took the carrots. Afflict you with a thousand cuts. A hand reached in and took the great god on. The cannibal fungi of... Shut up, hissed brother, shoving the tortoise under his robe. He sidled towards the door, unnoticed in the general culinary chaos. One of the cooks looked at him and raised an eyebrow. Uh, just got to take this back. "'Brother burbled, bringing out the tortoise and waving it helpfully. "'Deacon's orders.' "'The cook scowled and then shrugged. "'Novices were regarded by one and all as the lowest form of life, "'but orders from the hierarchy were to be obeyed without question, "'unless the questioner wanted to find himself faced with more important questions "'like whether or not it is possible to go to heaven after being roasted alive. "'When they were out in the courtyard, "'Brother leaned against the wall and breathed out. "'Your eyeballs to—' the tortoise began— "'One more word,' said Brother, "'and it's back in the basket.' "'The tortoise fell silent. "'As it is, I shall probably get into trouble "'for missing comparative religion with Brother Welk,' said Brother. "'But the great God has seen fit "'to make the poor man short-sighted, "'and he probably won't notice I'm not there. "'Only if he does, I shall have to say what I've done, "'because telling lies to a brother is a sin, "'and the great God will send me to hell for a million years.' "'In this one case I could be merciful,' said the tortoise, "'no more than a thousand years at the outside. 
"'My grandmother told me I shall go to hell when I die anyway,' said Brother, ignoring this. "'Being alive is sinful. It stands to reason because you have to sin every day when you're alive.' He looked down at the tortoise. "'I know you're not the great god Om, Holy Horns, "'because if I was to touch the great god Om, Holy Horns, "'my hand would burn away. "'The great god would never become a tortoise, "'like Brother Numrod said. "'But it says in the book of the prophet Sina "'that when he was wandering in the desert "'the spirits of the ground and the air spoke unto him, "'so I wondered if you were one of those.' "'The tortoise gave him a one-eyed stare for a while. "'Then it said, "'Tall fellow!' "'Full beard, eyes wobbling all over the place.' "'What?' said Brother. "'I think I recall him,' said the tortoise. "'Eyes wobbled when he talked, and he talked all the time. "'To himself, walked into rocks a lot.' "'He wandered in the wilderness for three months,' said Brother. "'That explains it, then,' said the tortoise. "'There's not a lot to eat there that isn't mushrooms.' "'Perhaps you are a demon,' said Brother. The Septuagint forbids us to have discourse with demons. Yet in resisting demons, says the prophet Fruny, we may grow strong in faith. Your teeth to abscess with red-hot heat. Pardon? I swear to me that I am the great godom, greatest of gods. Brother tapped the tortoise on the shell. Let me show you something, demon. He could feel his faith growing if he listened hard. End of CD 1